Do you have any regrets? Have you ever done something only to regret it moments later? I'm sure everyone here can think of a few regrets, a few decisions that we've made that only in time proved to be unwise and regretful. Like a thorn in the flesh, like a splinter, they are often used to dig at us. Years go by, and then in a moment we're reminded of some foolish, albeit rash decision that we've made for which we regret. I'm sure even now a few are racing through your mind from perhaps some food that you shouldn't have eaten last night to some words that you spoke. And and as you spoke those words, it was as if they floated in the air and you wished that you could grab them and bring them back. A quick word of derision against a friend or a family member. We often have regrets. Many of us live under the really debilitating pressures of regrets. Every day we look in the mirror and regret decisions that we've made. Wishing that we could go back in time and change the choices that we've made. And as you think about regrets, you ever wonder, does God have regrets? Considering how poorly things have turned out, how broken our world is, ravished with sin, do you wonder, does God have regrets? Does He wish that some decision He may Perhaps the decision of creating the universe and creating us. Perhaps he wishes could be reversed. And if God does regret, what does that say about God? If the all-knowing and all-wise God can make a decision that is wrong, What does that say about him? What does that say about his character? Is he all wise and all knowing if he has regrets like us? Well, that question is what 1 Samuel 15 is really about. Does God regret? decisions that he's made. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been walking through the story of 1 Samuel. The story of 1 Samuel is really a combination of three stories that are combined together. 1 and 2 Samuel in the original Hebrew Bible are is one book, but for the sake of us uh, dull English folks, we needed to divide it into two books. Um, because, heaven forbid, we read a book that's very long. And so, we see First and Second Samuel is really 
three stories contained in these two books. And the first story is the story of Samuel, this young prophet that is raised up by God to lead God's people in the transition from the judges to the kings. The second story that we have been in the last few weeks is the story of Saul, the first king to reign over the monarch in Israel. Then, beginning in chapter 16, all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, is the story of David. The story of the king after God's own heart and his son Samuel, or his son Solomon, who will come after him. And what we have considered throughout these various stories is how God's people desired to have a king like the nations around them. And a search was formed for such a king to fill this role of the first king. And as the people looked around and desired a king like the world around them, God had given them a king that would satisfy their desires. And that king was Saul. Saul was a good-looking man. He was handsome, we are told. We are told that he was tall, that his head, his shoulders rose above everyone else's heads. He was rich. He was a simple man, but he was strong, and people were attracted to him. He was the right man for the job. Because of his attractiveness and his wealth, He fit the job of being a king like the world around them. And Saul started out well. He seemed to be the king that God's people needed. But as we've seen in the story, as time would tell, Saul was not the king they needed. He was the king they wanted, the king like the nations around them. You see, God was doing something for His people. He was teaching them. He was allowing them to walk in sin so that they would see their need for Him. God was giving them the King that they wanted so that they could see the King they really needed. They didn't need a King like the world around them. They needed a King who wouldn't follow people. A King who would fear man. But what they needed was a king who would fear God. A king who would obey. A king, as we're told, after God's own heart. As we consider Saul's, all by ugly finish to his race, I hope to reflect on what we learn about God And particularly his delight. What delights God? What makes God happy? What brings joy to God this morning? Before we do that, let's read, consider in God's word in 1 Samuel in chapter 15. So I invite you to turn there. Page 237 in the Pew Bibles. If you have not turned there and you don't have a Bible, grab that Bible in front of you, open it up. This is the living Word of God. It breathes life where there's death. And so we want to consider it this morning. 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havlah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Saul, told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, and to sacrifice the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission And said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekite, and I have devoted to destruction the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil, and sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and said to him, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went up to the house of Gibeah, in Gibeah of, Sam, of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You have to love, First Samuel. You have to love the Word of God. What is the point of this passage? What well, comes to us very clearly in verse 22 God delights in your obedience to His commandments. The point of 1 Samuel 15 is is to understand who God is and how you are to interact with Him. The, The point of 1 Samuel 15 is more about God than it is about Saul and Samuel. It's about what, what makes God happy, what brings Him joy. What does he delight in? Does he delight in sacrifice? Does he delight in your efforts? Does he delight in your obedience? In your obeying of his commands? The purpose of our time this morning is to really encourage us, I hope, to encourage us to obedience, to obey the Lord. To not have half-hearted disobedience or half-hearted obedience. This is what we see in in Saul. A a half-hearted obedience. It's it's an almost obedience. It's real close. It's like, you know, it's kind of on the line. It looks like obedience. But it's not obedience. Partial obedience. We see Saul's half-hearted obedience And then we see the Lord's response to that and His desire for us to obey Him. And that's what we want to think about 
this morning. And, and I know 1 Samuel 15 presents to us some, some trickiness, some, some thorniness to it. And so I don't want to complicate things with a sort of very highly structured sermon. There's multiple points, but I want to consider a few questions as we work through the text. I, I know some of you, and I know where you're at, you're thinking, whoa, whoa, God says to kill infants and nursing mothers. Now that scares me. You read that, as you heard that in your modern ears, I know they tingled. If you've got the CSB, they flush that out even more, where it says that God commanded them to, to kill nursing infants, like little babies just born. And then there's this whole thing about, I don't regret, or I have regret, God doesn't regret, I regret. Which is it? Does God have regret, or does God not have regret? And then what's going on with Samuel hacking to, get, ha- hacking to pieces the king of Agag? What, what's going on here? Is this appropriate behavior for the prophets of God? What's going on in this passage? And so this morning, I hope to sort out that way by, by really thinking about, first, Saul's half-hearted obedience. What's going on here? What's going on particularly in this mission that God is sending him on? And then consider the Lord's desire for our obedience. Well, we see in verses 1 through 3 that God sends Saul on a mission. Using that language of a mission, right? Like a military mission. He has a mission. His commander-in-chief, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the one who reigns sovereign and who is over the armies of Israel, commands the general, Saul, to go and to annihilate the Amalekites. The Lord of hosts, we are told in verse 2. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in imposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare one of them, any of them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Samuel comes to Saul and he says, listen to the words of God. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say, Saul. Samuel gave Saul clear instructions for which Saul does not misunderstand what is going on. Saul was to destroy all of the Amalekites and their possessions. He was to erase this people and their things from the face of the earth. The language that God uses here of devote to destruction is the language of set apart for my glory. So when a sacrifice is made on the altar, it is devoted to destruction. Saul was not to take a bounty. He was not to get rich off of this conquest. But he was to represent God in God's judgment 
of the Amalekites. The Lord had promised back in Exodus chapter 17 through Moses, he had prophesied, told Moses, write this in a memorial, in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now why is God at war with Amalek? What is it about these people that God is so frustrated with? Well, what Amalek did to Israel when they left Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, was not to attack the Israelites from the front, where all the men of war were, but to circle around and come to where all the women and children were, to attack Israel at its weakest point, and as we see in the text, to make childless these women. This is what we're told in Deuteronomy. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land that the Lord your God has given you, Then you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now as you consider this passage and consider a few factors, I know, I hope your mind is racing. What is God doing using a sinful man like Saul to execute judgment on sinful people? Saul was imperfect. He was broken. He was just as rebellious as the the Amalekites. What we're to understand from this passage is that Saul's actions here are not his own, but God's. This is what Samuel makes so clear. I am sending you on a mission from the Lord. This is the Lord's mission. God is judging the Amalekites because of their rebellion against him. And so perhaps this text troubles you as you look and you say, man, what's up with God killing innocent children and innocent women? What's going on here with the Israelites killing these innocent people? Did God really judge these innocent people? What did these infants do? After all, if you think about the timeline, these people were not even alive when Amalek did what he did to Israel. What kind of God would do this? The question I have for you, is this your God? Is this the God that we sang praises to a moment ago? The God would destroy an innocent people like children, like little children running around playful. I mean, they just have no cares in the world. What is God doing? God is eradicating this people so that their poisonous rebellion does not spread to Israel. 
Like an infection, God is eradicating that infection lest it spread to the rest of the body. And the problem with your question about innocent people is that there were no innocent people that day. Every one of them were guilty. Even the Israelites were guilty. Verse 18, as you heard me read, makes clear that they were sinners who deserved death. And the Bible is so clear to us this morning that every single human being, irrespective of their age, deserves death for their participation in the rebellion against God. Every human, regardless of age, is a sinner. That's what Paul says when he says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't say all adults have fallen short of the glory of God. No, no, he says all man has fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is hereditary. It passes down from one generation to the next. And if the infection is not caught off at the source, that infection begins to spread. But friends, what we trust and understand is that while all sinners deserve to die, God in His grace saves some. This is what God does. He's done it from the beginning. God has saved some and condemned others. Not only We see that in the passage here, don't we? Saul went down and he said, hey, Kenites. Those Kenites were just as sinful. They were chilling with the Amalekites. They were hanging out with them. Surely they picked up a few of their practices. The Kenites here are spared. We see that God has mercy on whom He will have mercy. Though the Kenites deserve death, God's judgment was delayed. God's judgment was delayed. For these people, God's judgment came. For us, judgment is delayed. There certainly would come a day for them for which they would face God's judgment for their sin, but that day was not this day. Saul himself deserved to die for his rebellion, and one day he would die. This book of 1 Samuel ends with Saul's death for this very act. At the end of this book, we are told that Saul, you are going to die. 1 Samuel 28, after he plays around with the the witch at Endor and hangs out with her for a while and has a great party with her, He is told by the ghost of Samuel that because of your willing rebellion against the clear commands of God, you're going to die. So what are we to make of this? Friends, the clearest place that we see God's judgment on display is through the cross. Yet what makes the cross so different than what we see here is that the man on the cross, the man Jesus Christ, did not deserve to be there. He was the only innocent one that day. He had done nothing to deserve God's judgment, yet God used sinful men, the leaders of Israel and the Roman government, to execute His own Son. Jesus did not die the death He deserved, but died the death that these sinners deserved, that you and I deserve for our willful rebellion Against God. So that all those who would turn from their sin and trust in Him would be 
save. There was no innocent people that day. God was just in his judgment for their participation in rebellion against God. And had he not eliminated that, that rebellion would have continued from generation to generation. God and his grace saved. Well, as we see here, Saul disobeys the Lord. And getting back to this idea of disobedience and getting back to obedience versus disobedience, the text makes clear that, that as Saul goes down to raid against the Amalekites, as he goes down to annihilate them, we are told that Saul spares the king. The king Agag, their king, was, was spared Foolishly, Saul and the people disobeyed God's clear instructions. And the instructions were very clear. Rather than devoting to destruction all of the people, they spared some of it. The king and the, to be a trophy of war, Saul was going to parade the king around, look at what I did, and also the choice of the livestock. Saul here demonstrates his lack of trust in the Lord Through his disobedience. Saul thought he knew better. God had declared that all was worthless and worthy of destruction. But here you see Saul separating things. There's some things that were worthy of destruction. And some things that were not worthy of destruction. Here Saul is playing the part of God. But God had said all of it is worthless. And in a moment Saul will turn the finger towards the people. Yet again. The people made me do it. The people are doing it. Saul's obedience to the Lord is only half-hearted. Again, as we looked at last week, Saul had forgotten whose battle he was fighting. He forgot whose war he was leading. This was the Lord's war, and therefore the spoils was the Lord's, not his. And friend, the point I hope you see in this text so clearly is that half-hearted obedience is no obedience at all. That's the point. If you obey God 90% of the time, you obey God none. That's Jesus' point on the Sermon on the Mount. Just consider for a moment, I know we like the Sermon on the Mount. We read it, we're like, oh, we got some good stuff there. Love your neighbors and, you know, build your house on the rock and all that. Blessed is the meek, all those. Love it. You know what Jesus is doing through the Sermon on the Mount? He's not commending you to obedience. He is crushing you under the weight of the law. Don't commit adultery. Never cheated on my wife. Jesus says, now, if you lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. Oh, Jesus, that's, a, that's pretty intense. What do you mean? I mean, Jesus, that's, you're, you're kind of taking the law a little too far here. Who could ever do that? Remember, Jesus is talking there on the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of farmers and housewives, and he says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees were like the most religious people of all. 
They were the ones that were like following all the little pieces and parts of the law. They were the ones that were tithing like the smallest little thing. They were the ones who appeared to be most obedient. Jesus is saying, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you don't get into heaven. In other words, Jesus is telling them, you will never be able to obey God. You need someone else to obey for you. 90% obedience, 99% obedience is insufficient in the eyes of God. God does not want you to read his word and say, hey, you know what? I'm good over here, but over here, you know, I'm just a sinner and I need Jesus. No, no, no. God's exhortation here in his word is to obey. So I wonder this morning, how are you obeying the Lord in only some of what he says? You obey, you know, some of these commands. Like I read my Bible and I pray. But love? No, that's for the super spiritual ones. Remember what Paul said? 1 Corinthians. You can be the most spiritual person in the world, but if you have not love, you're an instrument out of tune for which everyone wants to stop their ears. You're a noisy, clanging cymbal that, that is out of beat. God desires obedience. Do you pick and choose what you'll obey? Or do you obey all of the word of the Lord? Saul refused to listen to God's word. He took what he wanted from God's word and he ran with it and he forsook the rest. He lived more in the fear of man than he did in the fear of God. And as a result, what we see in verses 10 through 35 is that the Lord rejects him, rips the kingdom from his hand and passes it to another, one who will obey the Lord. Friend, the point, again, I want to stress to you this morning is that God delights in those who do all His Word. He delights in those who obey all of His commandments. Well, we must move on. Look at verses 10 through 16. We see here Samuel confronting Saul in his sin. And Saul's half-hearted obedience is accompanied by a half-hearted obedience. Repentance. We are told that God regrets that he has made Saul king. In a moment we'll consider what that means. But what makes clear is then verse 29 that Samuel makes it clear that God does not lie or have regret. So, so which is it? Does God regret or does he not regret? God sovereignly chose Saul to be king over Israel. In this passage, God is not saying that his decision was a mistake. What he's saying is that I am sorrowful over Saul. For God, he cannot make a mistake. If God made mistakes, if God's decisions were wrong decisions, then he wouldn't be God at all. He would not be perfect. The language he that the the narrator is using here and harkens back to Genesis chapter 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. He was grieved. He was sorrowful. 
He was broken by his decision. But as we see in verse 29, it isn't that God regrets like man. So to be clear, the narrator is explaining to us what we mean by regret. God regretted, but that regret did not leave him to abandon his creation. In other words, as we thought at the beginning of the sermon this morning about regret, and there's a way you emotionally process your regret, that is not how God deals with decisions. So what, verse 29, God is not like man that he should have regret. God is fully confident in every decision he made. But in his regret, he did not abandon his people. Rather, it is just after this, in Genesis 6, that he raised up Noah, a faithful one, one who would obey the word of the Lord. And so in similar fashion, God regrets Saul, but will raise up another. One who will faithfully obey a king after God's own heart. Remember the point that we've considered throughout the story of Saul is that God gave the people the king they wanted to prepare them for the king they needed. God selected King Saul so that the people could see, listen, we need a king who's not going to obey his own word, but is who will obey the word of the Lord. A few things I just want to point out to you here. When Samuel confronts Saul, Saul begins to shift the blame, begins to focus on other things. And look at verse 15, or verse 14, excuse me. Verse 14. Saul's confident that he's obeyed the word of the Lord. And Samuel says to him, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Brothers and sisters, your sin will always rat you out. You may be doing an excellent job today hiding your sin. You may be an expert at it, actually. No one truly knows who you are. You do an excellent job covering it up. I just wonder this morning, how are you hiding your sin? How are you making excuses for it? Explaining it away? Justifying it? How have you learned to be an expert at hiding it? Deceiving all those around you. Even deceiving us this morning. Friends, we can become a master of deception. Lie to others and even lie to ourselves. But the promise of Scripture holds so true. That in the end, all sin will be brought to the light. All sin will finally be exposed. And so bring your sin into the light. Better to bring it into the light now than to bring it into the light of God's judgment. Better to expose sin. Well, before we see in this text, it it exposes you. How are you hiding your sin this morning? Well, as we continue on, I want to look at a, a few other things. Verses 17 through 23. Here Samuel questions Saul's disobedience, and I just want to get to the heart of the text. Again, there's this back and forth, I obeyed, no you didn't obey, I've done this, no you haven't done this. Verse 22, Samuel sets out the theology for which we are to understand God has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, it's better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as is iniquity and idolatry. 
In other words, it could be like this. Invite you over to dinner. And after dinner, we go and we get a Ouija board out. We call on Satan. Hey, Satan, come and join us here today. Uh, you look at me very strangely. Pastor, what are you doing? It's okay. We're, we'll, we'll be at church tomorrow. We're going to do the church thing tomorrow. But right now, we're going to do this. Now, hopefully, most of you would be very freaked out by that and be like, well, that's what's going on. But notice what Samuel says. That disobedience is the same as satanic worship. That's what he says. For rebellion is the sin of divination. Calling on divine spirits to come. And you always thought those were the really bad people. Not so. Presumption, presuming on the will of God is the same as iniquity and idolatry. This text tells us how much God delights in obedience. See, for us, we put those kind of really bad things over in this other category. You know, those terrible, idolatrous, materialistic people. Oh, satanic worshipers, tattoos, they're doing weird seances and stuff. Samuel says, no, that's you. If you disobey the clear teaching of Scripture, you're in their camp more than you're in the other. God is clear. There is no half-hearted obedience to the Lord. God desires for us to obey. And this passage sets the standard for which every king after Saul will be measured. That the kings of Israel will be people who obey the Lord. But as time will tell, every one of those kings will disobey God. Even the king that comes right after Saul, King David. We know David's famous disobedience in his sin with Killing, the murder, an idolatrous relationship. We know Solomon's sin, collecting wives as if they are trophies of war. King after king, child after child, grandchild after grandchild would assume the throne and disobey the word of the Lord until there came a king from the descendant of David, a king who was different, a king who would obey the word of the Lord in every way. A king we heard about in Philippians chapter 2 who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on cross. Jesus' life Jesus' obedience proved to be the king we all needed. A king who would perfectly obey the word of the Lord. Where we fall and fail to obey, Jesus obeys perfectly. So friend, this morning, I don't want you to think, wow, 
Unless I obey God, I will not see him. Yes, that is true. This is why you need one who will perfectly obey on your behalf. Why you need Jesus this morning. What you need this morning is not to begin with obedience to please God, but find that someone has fully pleased God through obedience. And that person is Jesus. And by trusting in Him, you can have the power to obey. Our obedience does not earn our salvation, but we do obey as a reflection of our new life in Christ. So friend this morning, how are you half-hearted in your obedience? How is it that you failed to obey the word of the Lord? How is it that you have not trusted the Lord this week? God delights in this. First and foremost, we must understand that we cannot obey God. We must have another. But as Christians, we do not relegate obedience to some back burner and say, you know, we'll get to it when we have time. But rather, as Christians, we move it to the forefront. And we want to delight God. We want to enjoy God. And we want God to enjoy us through obedience. This is what Paul says is our act of worship to, of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your Spiritual worship. Do you know how you get conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us worship God today through obedience, giving Him glory by following all of His words. Let's pray. Father, we trust this morning your word is true about us, that every one of us is a rebel, every one of us has disobeyed your word. Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice, or we would give it today. You're not pleased with burnt offerings, but what you desire is a broken spirit. And a contrite heart. This, so Father, your word says you will not despise. Father, we confess our sin to you. And our need for Christ. Lord, I pray that that those here today that are not walking in obedience, Lord. That are walking in willful rebellion would repent and stop going their way and go your way. And have life. That they would trust in the finished work of Christ for eternal life. Lord, I pray for us as your people that we would value obedience over other things. That we would see you and your delight in our obedience, your joy. Help us, Father, we pray, to put a priority on obedience in our lives. For your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.